This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, March 14th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Universities are valuable institutions, and yet there are some on the right who view universities as an enemy. That may be in part because of the failure of universities to deliver so-called liberal education, where reason is used as a guide rather than simply a tool for defeating intellectual opponents. Jonathan Marks is author of the new book, Let's Be Reasonable, A Conservative Case for Liberal Education. We spoke last month. The subhead of your book is A Conservative Case for Liberal Education, and you don't use those two terms in the kind of opposition that we're used to seeing them placed in. So help me understand uh, what you mean when you say uh, liberal education. Well, liberal education means education for freedom, and the uh, particular way in which I use where I understand liberal education is uh, education for the shaping of reasonable people. Now, um, as a conservative, um, I'm one of those um, conservatives who looks back to the tradition of the Declaration of Independence, um, which we speak of as a liberal tradition, right? Not Nancy Pelosi um, liberal, um, but liberal democratic. And my understanding uh, of the Declaration is of a document uncommonly um, open to reason. Um, So Jefferson wrote, not that document, but another of the free unbounded exercise of reason, and understood that to be consistent with and supportive of uh, liberal principles. That is, the more you thought them through, uh, the more you'd like them and the better you'd be at defending them. So where have we fallen down? Where have we failed to deliver that kind of education, not just to young people, but to everyone? Well, my main interest is in the universities. So I've thought especially of how um, universities have tended to uh, let us down um, at times. And I think that there are a lot of um, reasons for that. Uh, One is um, a kind of confusion about purpose. So one element of the university has always been um, what we now call critical thinking, uh, but what we might also have referred to as the shaping of reasonable people, Um, but in part because of pressures to uh, draw um, the students we need um, to prosper and to satisfy the various constituencies, donors, politicians, and so on that want a piece of the university. We've run a lot of other ideas up the flagpole uh, to see uh, what people like and how the food is tasting. And so we claim to offer civic education, interdisciplinary education. Um, We promise to solve the race problem um, and so on. Um, So it seems to me that there's a a confusion um, of purpose here. So when I think of uh, uh, education of young people in particular uh, at at universities, I'm thinking of people who went to a public high school and then went to a big state school. Um, But as you identify it or as you argue, um, that's not necessarily where the problem is rooted. Well, I'm not sure to say a little bit more. With respect to uh, the, the us failing to deliver that kind of education, particular to young people, you blame universities, but uh, universities are not exclusively big state schools uh, where uh, young people go to get some sort of practical training for uh, the workforce. Well, that's right. So, so even small uh, institutions like the one I work at, I work at uh, Ursinus Ur- Ur- College. 
Um, and I think Ursai's college actually has a pretty good idea uh, of what liberal education is about, but uh, every institution seems to claim to offer liberal education of one kind or another, and even the ones that strongly identify themselves as um, institutions devoted to uh, liberal education um, show the same, I think, perplexity about purpose. Um, so you consider an organization like the Association of American Colleges and Universities, um, which is an organization that's specifically devoted to liberal education and includes a lot of small liberal arts colleges like my own. And you look at the kinds of things they say, and they'll, they'll talk about um, uh, the development of skills, racial reconciliation. Um, here are some assessment tools that you can use. We've got some rubrics for you. Um, and, and there's very little um, there um, about the notion of shaping reasonable people. Again, not, not much of a core there to speak of. Before we continue, we should get a sense of what, what is a reasonable person. Yeah, so I, I start out my book with um, a quotation from the political philosopher John Locke, um, certainly one um, influence on the American Declaration. He says, uh, there cannot be anything so misbecoming, unbecoming, unfitting for anyone who pretends to be a rational creature is not to yield to plain reason and the conviction of, of clear arguments. And what's being described there is not you know, the various skills we might think of as connected with critical thinking, although those skills are important, um, they're possessed by um, all, all sorts of people, you know, um, uh, pundits or social media frenemy, um, spokespeople um, who are trying to defend a particular um, point of view. Um, what being reasonable in the sense described the quotation means is understanding reason um, as a guide rather than simply an instrument for getting the better of others. Um, Locke distinguishes between uh, a man of reason, and so when he calls a logical chicaner, right, somebody who's just very good at winning arguments and making the weaker argument the stronger, and he says that this is the most important distinction he knows of, right? Um, so the reasonable person um, is not merely somebody who possesses a set of skills, but somebody who, in conversation with others, who are trying to be reasonable, because generally speaking, we're not that good at achieving it, we're trying it, um, says to others, you know, let's stop puffing ourselves up, let's stop fooling around, let's stop boosting our tribe, and let's see what valid conclusions we can draw from what we know. And if we can't draw any, then let's figure out what we need to know in order to draw such conclusions. I uh, mentioned before we started recording that I knew a lot of people, uh, and I'll broaden it a little bit, conservatives and progressives who, in the last six years or so have gone all in on tribalism and have sort of their reasoning capabilities in a sense, at least from my estimation, have been overwhelmed by something else. And uh, a lot of people to some extent are coming back in a way, in my view, but uh, it, it, it has been surprising to me to see people who have the capability just not use it in a way. And that's, I mean, that's obviously a judgment on my part, but, uh, it's, it's been, it's been surprising. Yeah. Well, I, I think attachment to these things, uh, has always been quite fragile. Um, just like attachment to, uh, free speech, um, has always been quite fragile. 
And even if you look at, you know, maybe the most rational document I can think of in American political philosophy, the Federalist Papers, that begins with the first paper by Hamilton is about public deliberation. He says, well, you know, what's going to happen is what happens in all great national debates. A torrent of angry and malignant passions will be let loose, right? Um, and so, you know, th there's a way in which when our interests and our passions are joined, uh, you know, we're, we're likely to uh, get pretty narrow. Um, and that's something that's that, that's difficult to overcome. It's one thing that I think makes liberal education so difficult and uh, so chancy. So another element of what I think of as conservatism, on the one hand, you have this strange element of American conservatism that says, we're attached to this old revolution, right, uh, that goes under the name liberalism. But another element of it is an awareness of the fragility of reason. I think that's something that one can too easily take uh, for granted during relatively peaceful moments. Well, describe what is iGen? <laughs> uh, well, iGen, you know, it's also called um, Generation Z. I'm not going to remember the specific dates, but it's a generation that comes right after uh, the millennials. Um, so there's a generation that's um, in college right now. I think they entered college around 2014 or 2015. Um, and some want to argue because their entry to college roughly coincided with the wave of protests um, in 2015-2016 at colleges and universities, you know, ranging from Yale to Missouri State, uh, many, many campuses across the country, protest demands and so on. Uh, folks want to say that this you know, has something to do with, um, with the specific characteristics of uh, Generation Z. Um, Although I have a lot of respect for that argument, and I love um, one book in which it's made, Greg Lukianoff's and um, Jonathan Haidt's The Coddly of the American Mind, um, I, I don't really think that argument's right, and I'm happy to talk a little bit more about it if you'd like. Yeah, why is that? Why it, Characterize our argument as best you can, as fairly as you can, and then and then tell us why you don't think it holds up. Well, I think their argument is that, um, and it's going to be impossible to get the whole thing in, but the basic argument is something has really changed with this generation, right? This is a new group of people uncommonly um, hostile toward free speech because uncommonly attached to safety, right? Um, and this has something to do with the way they've been raised, right? The um, cliche, the generation that didn't skin its knees, although that was also uh, a cliche that was used with respect to millennials. Um, the reason I don't think this is this is quite right. I mean, there are a lot of reasons, but one reason is that um, I, I think that the the timing is wrong. Um, if you look at survey data about college freshmen and when they sort of begin to change their attitudes um, toward free speech, it occurs much earlier. Um, than when iGen um, enters the scene. It's hard to pinpoint it exactly, but certainly by by 2004, you see a, a big difference, right, between what students were saying about a college's right um, to ban extreme speech or limit extreme speech um, than they were saying, say, in the uh, in the 1980s. Um, you know, there's a sort of doubling of the numbers who um, thought that colleges do indeed have a right um, to sort of control extreme speech. So change occurred a lot earlier. The other reason is that although it's true, if you look at survey data like uh, University of Michigan's Monterey of the Future, you do find that the profile, the attachment to safety of young people looks different than it did 
you know, maybe 15 years ago. But if you go back a little bit further, right, Generation Z, again, based on surveys like the University of Michigan Monitoring the Future survey, actually have a higher risk tolerance, right, or seem to have a higher risk tolerance than, uh, you know, folks like me uh, for, from Generation uh, X, you know, notoriously, you know, allowed to skin their knees, raised by wolves, riding beltless in the backs of station wagons and so on. Um, so I don't think it's quite right that this generation is uncommonly um, risk averse. The alternative then is that uh, you say that the changes that that Lukianoff and Haidt identify occurred much earlier and there was nothing particularly special about the generation that came of age uh, in 2014, 2015. Yeah, about the generation, I I do think that there um, was an intensification of all kinds of um, debates we've been having um, in the academy right around that time, 2014, 2015, 2016. Uh, But I don't think they're generational in character. This is one of those cases where I think in some ways, um, although we often think of the movement from ideas that you've got in college to the outside world, um, here, I think what we're mostly seeing, and Lukianov and Haidt also talk about this, is the polarization out there working its way um, inside colleges, universities, intensifying tendencies that were already present. So what is the commitment that not just universities, but people of goodwill, people who think that they are people of goodwill, uh, ought to have with respect to being open with respect to ideas or having their mind changed or presuming goodwill on the part of others? Yeah, well, I, I guess I, I don't think goodwill is necessarily to be presumed, but the, the, the opposite uh, oughtn't to be presumed either. Uh, the basic commitment is um, to following the argument um, where it leads, but I don't think it necessarily requires a sort of robust, noble, um, commitment to understand why that's important. Uh, one reason that um, I like to draw on somebody like John Locke, and I also draw on Benjamin Franklin uh, in the book, um, is that uh, their understanding of reason is emphatically practical, right? So when you're talking about being reasonable, one thing you have to account for is that we're we're partial beings, right? We talked about political partisanship, but we're partial in a lot of other ways too. Right as Locke puts it, uh, we see but in part, and we know but in part, and therefore, um, it's 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 no no wonder that we conclude not right from our our partial views. And liberal education, another way of describing it, is the pursuit of what Locke calls comprehensive enlargement of mind. Um, what does that mean? Uh, well, it means a lot of things, but among the things it means is listening to the opposing arguments the best ones you can find. It means even listening to people you think might come short of you um, in capacity, because even if they really do, even if you're not mistaken about that, uh, their experience might correct your narrow experience. It means reading old books as well as new ones, because part of our narrowness is the narrowness of time. It means travel if you can manage to do it, because part of our narrowness is the narrowness of place. But overcoming narrowness is not just you know sort of philosophical virtue it's a virtue that uh, one needs um in order to avoid making consequential errors in just about anything uh, you want to do 
um, unless it happens that your prejudices and narrowness coincide perfectly with the circumstances that surround you, you're just likely to make consequential errors if you don't devote yourself to enlarging your mind. You use the word war here a lot, and this is a metaphorical war. This is not taking up arms. Uh, why do you feel that that is an appropriate framing of the discussion around liberal education? Well, I think the discussion around liberal education right now, um, particularly as it comes uh, from um, conservatives, in a way, a subset of the discussion we're having um, about the country. So, for example, you go back to uh, Michael Anton's 2016 piece, the Claremont uh, Review of Books, as we're sort of, uh, you know, the Trump era is beginning to dawn um, at that point, um, I suppose. And the argument of that piece, it's called the Flight 93 election, is that things are, you know, conservatives have been so routed, they've lost every battle. You know, they've lost the battle to preserve tradition, they've lost the battle to um, uh, fend off um, big government, they've lost every battle. And if Hillary Clinton wins the election, that's it, the country's over. That's the argument, right? Flight 93 means you rush the cockpit, even if you're not convinced the leader knows how to fly. Because things are so far gone, right? That's the only appropriate response. Now, if you think that about the country, you're certainly on, on war footing. That is to say, the enemy is so bad and the stakes are so high, you have to be prepared to do just about anything um, in order to make sure that the country isn't irredeemably changed, the point of no return. Now, if you think that about the country, you think that even more so about um, universities, which are more progressive, certainly right, uh, than the United States in general, right? They've been far gone, right, if you have that understanding, um, for many years. And so you tend to think of universities as, as already irredeemably corrupt, um, as uh, bent on the destruction of the country, as a uh, you know, commentator like Roger Kimball says, as, as outlaws, as Victor Davis Hansen, uh, the classicist, um, describes them. So conservatives are very much on war footing um, about universities to the point where they think of them as enemy strongholds um, and they're contemplating burning them down in the hopes that maybe something will rise up um, out of the ashes. I think that understanding, and, and my book spends a lot of time on the deficiencies of universities, but one of my purposes in writing the book was to try to persuade some of my fellow conservatives that it's not quite that bad um, inside um, of universities. Conservatives are not, generally speaking, being boiled in oil um, here. Uh, if you care about great books, they're, they're still read. Uh, works like Aristotle's Ethics and Plato's Republic remain in the top 10 of books assigned um, at colleges and universities, according to the Open Syllabus Project, which collects an enormous number of syllabuses in order to make these determinations. Um, so one shouldn't believe everything one hears about the state of colleges and universities, even though there's, there's a great deal um, to criticize in them. That's certainly not made up. All right. What else? How about some hope for the end? Well, I, I think there's there's a lot of hope. I think that internally, um, there remain forces at colleges, universities that are devoted to the shaping of reasonable people. Um, they're not very loud. Um, 
they need to be galvanized. Um, but I think, for example, of many natural scientists um, at colleges, universities, some social scientists, and you see organizations developing. They're not just wonderful sort of outsider organizations like the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, which does a wonderful job um, of defending uh, uh, First Amendment freedoms at colleges and universities, but also internal ones actually made up of academics of the right, left, and center. Um, organizations like the Heterodox Academy, which is devoted to um, free inquiry. Organizations like the Academic Freedom Alliance, very recently founded um, which has some of the same concerns as the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, but it's an internal organization of academics. Um, so I think there's there's significant, you know, sort of internal devotion um, to the values that we associate uh, or that I'm trying to associate with colleges, universities here. There's also a lot of external pressure, which I think uh, could do a lot of good. College universities are having. Um, of tough time in some ways. Um, they're casting about for ways to distinguish themselves. Um, one thing that Haydn Lukinoff argue in their book, which I think is quite true, um, is that defining oneself um, as an institution devoted to reason, especially in light of frustration, not just among Republicans, but primarily among Republicans, um, with institutions they regard as excessively politicizing, you know, might just sell. Uh, that is to say, this is not a bad time to making a case um, for liberal education, because I think a lot of institutions are quite desperate to find a good way of distinguishing themselves. Um, and, 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 and this is one of them. Um, the last point I'd make in terms of hope is just that, um, you know, and I think this remains a conservative value. Not, not everything has changed. I mean, we're 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 not in a great moment um, in a lot of ways, either in the country or at colleges and universities. But uh, you know, the students I encounter, this part of my generational argument, are are not so different from the students they encountered at the beginning of my career. Um, they have much more complicated views on free speech than you'd imagine. Um, if you just read journals devoted to criticizing um, colleges and universities, um, they're more open to opposing points of view than you might imagine. There are many fewer who are on the far left um, than you might imagine. Um, so I think you know students are not necessarily less open to the idea that being reasonable is something that's that's useful. And that might actually be a pleasant thing to be pursued in the company of others um, than they were before. And that means there's still an openness to, uh, to good teaching um, at colleges and universities. Jonathan Marks is author of Let's Be Reasonable, A Conservative Case for Liberal Education. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>